Well, good morning. Good to see you guys. Good morning to everyone online. Good morning to Pastor Scott and friends over at our Farmington Hills campus. I see that you and Sean did a little campus swap here, so hope you guys are doing well over there at Farmington Hills this morning. Today we're going to continue in our series through the book of Nehemiah, but before we go any further, let's pray. Dear God, we come to you in your mighty son's Jesus' name. God, thanking you for the opportunity to gather, thanking you for your word, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, God. I pray that I would decrease and that you would increase and be made much of in the lives of your people, God. God, specifically, I just want to lift up those this morning who are sick or shut in or dealing with any kind of physical ailments. I know of a few people in our congregation. God, I just pray your blessing over them. I pray your healing power over them. God, I speak Jesus over them as we sang this morning. God, be with us. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 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 In 1976, a young pastor from the Midwest packed up his Volkswagen Beetle to drive across the country to California to preach at a revival. He had ambitions to be a revival preacher. He wanted to be a traveling preacher that traveled around and preached revival. And this is one opportunity he had been given. And so he worked on that sermon all the way from the Midwest to California. Every time he stopped at a stoplight, he'd overview his sermon. He was ready to preach and bring revival. Well, he shows up to the church and he introduces himself to the pastor. He says, good morning, pastor. I'm the preacher for revival this weekend. The pastor responded, I think you are mistaken. I think there must have been some confusion somewhere. There is no revival this weekend. I don't know what you're talking about, young man. And so this young preacher who thought that he was coming to preach revival was actually now stranded across the country with $36 to his name. He found a motel that allowed him to stay there for $6 per night. So he stayed there for six nights, didn't have a dime left for gas, didn't have a dime left for food. So he just stayed in that room for six nights and he prayed and he met with God. He didn't eat a thing. He didn't watch a thing on television or the radio. He just met with God. Later on, that young pastor would grow up to be a rather accomplished preacher. He eventually did become that revival preacher. He said he traveled millions of miles preaching the gospel, preaching at revivals. But he says that that six days alone with God in that room was the most, most potent, most real, most powerful revival that he had ever experienced in his life. See, revival doesn't need a special place, a special room, a special speaker. Revival takes place when God's people have an encounter with him. Revival is accessible to all of us. That, that young preacher thought that he needed a special place and a special time to have a revival, but actually all he needed was some alone time with God to re- be revived in his spirit. I want to look at a definition of revival. The word revival means uh, vivo, which is a Latin word, and re, which is also a Latin word. Vivo meaning to live, re meaning again, to live again. To be revived is to live again. It's a spiritual rebirth or reawakening. I've talked with many fellow followers of Christ who've said, I want to see revival in our nation. I want to see 
revival in our land. Uh, There's this hope for this big come to Jesus moment for us all where things just turn around. So how do we get there? How do we, how do we actually bring about this revival into the nation, this revival into the land? How do we insert life into death and decay? I know it's not going to work. I know we can't, we can't strong arm revival. We can't force revival. Culture wars and things like that have never yielded true life in the culture. And as a matter of fact, I believe before we can have revival in the culture, we've, we must first have revival in the church. And before we can have revival in the church, we must have revival in you and in me. We must first have revival in our personal lives. We must first have revival in our own hearts. And I think that one of our challenges is this. We've been convinced, we've been convinced by the enemy or by ourselves or by our own thoughts that our little flame, our little flame doesn't really matter much. So maybe we show up to worship or we show up to Bible study and we get that flame ignited. But we don't think that flame really can do much. And so we don't guard the flame. We don't don't fan the flame. We don't pay attention to the flame. And I think that's something that Satan has often done in us to make us think that this little flame doesn't matter. But friends, I'm here to tell you this morning that all it takes is a little bit of fire. Someone with a little bit of fire for Jesus to make a huge difference. I think back to the great movements of our world, the Protestant Reformation, and just it took a little bit of fire. I look at the civil rights movement. It started with a little bit of fire. Maybe a marriage that's, that's in a down spot right now. Maybe a marriage that's on the rocks just needs one of the two in that, that marriage to have a little bit of fire for Jesus. A little bit of fire to transform a community. A, a little bit of fire to, to transform a school. All it takes is a little bit of fire. God can use that. With that being said, how, how, do, we, how do we get that? How do we experience Revival. How, how do we ignite that fire in our lives? A man by the name of Andrew Murray said it's quite simple. He said, here's the path to the higher life, that higher life meaning the revived life. Here's the path to the higher life, down, lower, down, meaning to be humble. Just as water always seeks and fills the lowest place, So the moment God finds men and women abased and empty, his glory and his power flow in to exalt and to bless. God is looking for people who are empty enough, empty-handed enough to receive what he wants to put in their hand. He's looking for the low. He's looking for the weak. He's looking for the willing. He's looking for those that are empty of self, empty of ego empty of agenda, empty of pride, so that he may fill them with himself. He's searching for people. Our God is a reviving God, and he's looking for the empty so that he may fill them with himself. Here's what we know about our our reviving God. Our God makes dead people live, dirty people clean, and empty people full. 
That's who he is. Our God makes dead people live, dirty people clean, and empty people full. So this morning, if you feel dead, if you feel dirty, and if you feel empty, you're in the right place. Our God is a reviving God. We're going to look at the story of a revival that took place in Israel. Israel has experienced years of brokenness, years of pain, years of desolation. Their temple had been destroyed. This was the place where they worshiped. It was the center of worship in Israel. Their their, uh, wall had been destroyed. Their infrastructure in their city had been destroyed. And furthermore, they had moved away from the word of God. They had been so broken, so beaten, so desolate, so, so depressed that they had gotten away from the word of God. But God is going to usher in a revival. And for the rest of the time, I, wanna, I want us to talk about the pathway to the higher life. We're going to talk about the pathway to the higher life. And we're going to see this in Israel. God's going to use a few guys to lead that. Ezra, Zerubbabel, and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel was the first person to return to Israel after all of those years of desolation. And so God's people had been held captive for many years, but they were now released to go back home. And and the first group to go back to Israel was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel's job was to rebuild the temple. He was going to rebuild the temple after years of that temple being destroyed. So he went back with a group. He experienced great opposition in that attempt, but he's going to lead a restoration of the temple. We've heard about Nehemiah. We've been studying Nehemiah. Nehemiah went back to restore the city's infrastructure. So he led the group that went back to rebuild the wall and the city gates that had been destroyed. And so Zerubbabel and Nehemiah were working on physical spaces and physical infrastructure to rebuild that. But God sent a man by the name of Ezra to lead a spiritual renewal, to lead spiritual revival, to to lead spiritual restoration. And here's where we're going to learn from Ezra, that engaging God's word is often the doorway to spiritual awakening. Engaging the word of God is often the doorway to spiritual awakening. Whenever there's a a reawakening or a move of God, the word of God is often present as God speaks. And so let's look at our passage this morning. It says, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring the book of the, of the law of Moses. Can you, can you sense the hunger? They said, bring the word of God, bring the book. We've been missing out on that. For some of them, they haven't heard the word of God and heard the word of God proclaimed over them for a very long time. And for some of them, they have never had the word of God proclaimed over them. And so as they're ushering in this restoration project, the people said, bring out the book of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak to noon as he faced the square. Check this out. They listened to the word of God read over them from daybreak, from the morning when the sun came up until noon. 
That's some kind of long worship service. I don't know if we're ready for that here at Ward Church. But they skip breakfast and lunch and everything to sit under the Word of God before the water gate in the presence of men and women and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. This was a, a great restoration of God's Word being brought back to the people. They were, they, they were so excited. They were so in love with, with what they were hearing. And the flame in them was beginning to be reignited. And I think this flame was reignited not because of their great love for God. These are people that had rebelled against God. This flame wasn't reignited because they loved God so much. I believe this flame was reignited because they were beginning to see that God still loved them. After years of their rebellion, after years of their running away, after their years of spiritual infidelity, God still had a word for them. God still loved them. God was still for them. And we're beginning to see the word of God bring about restoration and revival. As we engage God's word, engaging God's word is often the doorway to spiritual reawakening. Angola prison is a prison in Louisiana. It's a Louisiana state prison. And Angola had the reputation of being the place where hope went to die. It was a prison in Louisiana that was originally a slave plantation at one point in history. And that particular plantation transitioned to be a prison. Angola, Louisiana state penitentiary. And it was the place known as the bloodiest prison in America. Well, someone had a little bit of fire and they wanted to see God transition that place. So a warden by the name of Burl Kane took over as the warden of this place where hope was known to die. And he showed up and he wanted to add value back to the lives of the inmates. He wanted to restore hope back into the lives of the inmates in this very dark place. And so what was his strategy? This dark place that no one can figure out, what was his strategy? His strategy was the word of God. He invited a seminary to set up a four-year degree program at this prison in Angola. And so New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary set up a four-year college degree program where men would come in and they would learn and study for a degree, but they also would study the Bible. And so every day, hundreds of men would gather inside of classrooms and they would study the Word of God together and they would train and work towards a four-year degree. This is a, this is a true story. And then the warden decided to start a, a Bible uh, school in the prison as well. Can you imagine that? A Bible school in a prison. And so he started a two-year degree program for men who wanted to study to become pastors and missionaries. And men began to get Bible uh, seminary degrees and men became pastors in this particular church. And they had so much of a movement that they began to send out these seminary-trained pastors to the various prisons in Louisiana. So not only was God at work within this place that was known for being a place where hope went to die, he began to send people from that place to other prisons all throughout Louisiana. And the culture began to change. They, they began to have Bible studies all throughout the prison, prayer meetings in the yard. There was a little bit more hope and optimism in the place. 
And the strategy was the word of God. And many who were witnesses to this revival in this prison says that truthfully, the change came as a result of those people in the, in the, in the prison who had began to study God's word. As they began to be transformed by God's word, they began to transform this very dark environment. And as uh, people would observe this, they would say, oh, this is a great moral rehabilitation that's taking place. But those who knew Jesus would say, this is not just some moral rehabilitation. Jesus is in this place. Jesus has shown up in this place. And one of the correction officers who had been there for years, who had seen all of the darkness said, this is a real, this is a, an awakening. That's the only way I can describe it. This is an awakening that does not make sense. Friends, if God can transform the most violent prison in America, what might he do in your life? What kind of transformation might the word of God bring about in your life as you come to God empty-handed saying, God, have your way in me, have your, your way in my world. What kind of transformation might God bring about in your household? What, what kind of transformation may God bring about in your community? As we engage the word of God, it is often the doorway to spiritual reawakening. But our response to the word of God is the evidence of the spiritual awakening. As we respond, it's evidence that God is at work. As we come to the passage, we're going to see the people responding to the word. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And he, as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This once rebellious people, this once stiff-necked people, in the presence of God's grace, they can do nothing but worship. Their faces are down. They begin to respond to the word of God. Let's continue in verse 9. It says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. What was happening? What was happening here? Why was there so much weeping and mourning and crying? I believe two things were taking place. One, they were very aware of their own sin and their own brokenness. They began to see how far they had gotten away from God. They began to see how off base they were, how unfaithful they had been. So they became very aware of their own unfaithfulness, but simultaneously they became very aware of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. We sang it earlier, you are good. And they became very aware of the goodness of God, simultaneously aware of their own sin and brokenness and unfaithfulness, and also aware of the faithfulness of God. One of my favorite pastors, Tim Keller, says it this way. He says, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine. Think about how bad you think you are, and you're probably worse but we're more loved than we could ever know. That's the gospel, friends. The gospel is this. 
That because of what Jesus did on the cross, when he died for our sins and shed his blood and had his body broken for us, because of that, we are more sinful, yes, than we could ever imagine. That's why God had to come and die for us, because we were that sinful. But in the gospel, we're simultaneously more loved than we could ever imagine. And I believe this kind of awareness for Israel led to brokenness. They were wrecked. This God still loves us. He's still for us. He still calls me his in spite of all that I've done. Yes. And I believe this is what led to confession. This this eventually led to confession. They began to confess to God. Here's the reality. When we're confronted with our own sin and our own brokenness, you got a few options. One, you can deny it. Like That ain't me. Got the cookie crumbs all on your hand and the chocolate chips all on your lips, but that ain't me. You can deny it. You can justify it. Or you can confess that, God, this is true. And confession isn't beating yourself up. Confession isn't that. But it's, it's aligning with what's true of me and true of God. And here's what we know. Confession is the lighter fluid for revival. It's the lighter fluid. You look at any great revival that's ever taken place anywhere in the world, it was often preceded by God's people being broken and and confessing their sins before God. Confession is the lighter fluid for spiritual awakening. If you want to experience intimacy with God in your life, come clean before him. Be honest with him. Share your hearts, your secrets, your desires with him. Confession is the lighter fluid for spiritual awakening. And, and as we said, confession is simply agreeing with God about what's true of us and what's true of him. We see Nehemiah doing this. Nehemiah chapter 9, 33, it says, and all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. He's just being honest with God about what's true about God what's true about them. He says, in all this, you've been faithful when we've been wicked and unfaithful. And so the people went into a time of confession. It says, on the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of the Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins And the sins of their ancestors, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their Lord for a quarter of the day. A quarter of the day. No football. And spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. They were broken. They were wrecked. But they were honest about what they had done and even what their ancestors had done. And now they're in a time of confession. They were admitting that God, yes, we have been covenant breakers. We have not kept your word. We haven't kept our side of the bargain. We've worshiped idols. We've done evil in your sight. And here we see a scene of them coming clean before the Lord. There's something within the human psyche that just needs to come clean. It's hard to harbor things for long. Secrets make us sick. Secrets 
depress us and weigh us down. There's something in us that has to let it out and have to, and there's something in, in us that has to get it off of our, off of our chest. A man by the name of Frank Warren ventured out into a project to collect confessions and secrets. And initially, he only wanted to collect 500 of these confessions, and he wanted people to mail in their confessions to him on a postcard, and he was going to use that to make a collage. And people would look at it and be able to resonate and connect with other people's confessions, and that would bring about some kind of healing. And as people sent in their confessions, he thought that that would offer healing for them as well as they sent in those confessions. So he initially only wanted, he only wanted 500 of these. Throughout the years, Frank Warren has received over 500,000 confessions. This thing took off. People all over the world were sending him their, their confessions. They were wanting to get things off of their hearts, secrets that they had never shared with anyone. We have a few of them that I want to share with us. As a kid, I slipped Hershey bars up my sleeve at the grocery store, and I'd go to the store bathroom to eat them. Somebody needed to get that off their heart after years of hiding that. Only pretend to read important documents before signing them. Maybe we got some of, some of that in the house today. I mail my Christmas cards obscenely early because I'm afraid if I don't, no one will send me one. This is a rather serious one. No one really knows me. I almost took my life four years ago. The suffering felt inescapable at the time. Things have gotten better since then. In fact, my life is better today because of the Great Depression I passed through. I imagine that was very healing for that person to get that out. I love this one. They said that I believe in God again. Our God is a reviving God. He's a, he's a healing God. And we can come clean before him. And there's something in us that needs to come clean. That Greek word for clean means unmixed like pure water with no sugary flavoring stirred in it. When we confess to God that we have tried to live independently from him and want to join ourselves to him, he responds by cleansing us, making us pure at the core of our being. I love the way 1 John 1, 9 says it. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God. That's who he is. Our God makes dead people live, dirty people clean, and empty people full. And so we can come to him and come clean before him. As you came in this morning, you should have received one of these little, these little bricks. For the rest of our time, we'll just go to a time of confession. Maybe it's something that you need to lay before the Lord. And this will be completely anonymous. Please don't write your name on this. This will be completely anonymous. And these will go on our prayer wall and we'll continue to pray for each other through that. But I want to encourage you this morning to consider what may you desire to lay before God this morning. Maybe it's not a specific sin or transgression, but maybe it's something that's been on your mind. Maybe it's some emotions that you need to lay before the Lord, something that you've been feeling that you need to lay before him. God longs to cleanse us. Our God makes dead people live, dirty people clean, and empty people full. And we come to him humble, broken, and empty-handed. And as 1 John says, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And that's our hope, friends. That's the hope of the gospel. More sinful than we can ever imagine, more loved than we could ever know. You don't have to send in an anonymous postcard to a website. Good job, Frank Warren, for that. I'm sure that helped some people. But only Jesus is the one that can heal and forgive and bring about true restoration and transformation in our lives. Let's go before our Lord this morning and pray. Dear God, God, we confess. We confess our, our brokenness before you. We come agreeing that, God, we've been unfaithful to you. While you've been perfectly faithful to us, God, we confess our weakness and we need your strength. God, some of us come confessing our sins to you for the first time. Some of, some of us come confessing our sins for the 101st time. God, we pray that your blood would cleanse that you would give us the righteousness that comes from you, not from us. We have no righteousness of our own, our most righteous deeds, our filthy rags. So we lay, the, lay those down. We don't boast in what we've done, but we boast in what you've done. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen.